one. I was just thinking, walking up here and passing by Scott, that if you uh, if you missed last week's message, or maybe you didn't get it all written down because I didn't get it all written down, Scott, um, you can get it on the website at parksidebible.com, or you could probably ask one of the guys in the back and they could, they could burn you a CD. It's worth listening to. There was a lot of great and encouraging and challenging information in there. We are uh, we're blessed to have Scott um, with us last week, and, and so thank you, brother. Uh, well done, and um, God used that message in my heart. So um, praise the Lord for that. This morning we're going to be in Psalm 99, and uh, so if you'll be turning in your Bibles to Psalm 99, you have notes there, you can take notes. So as you're turning to Psalm 99, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, I think it's on page 500. So I picked a nice round number for you. Page 500. Psalm 99, let me read it to us. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great an awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies in the statute that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord, our God, is holy. Let's pray. Lord, our God, you are holy. You are holy. We would have no right to come to you, even in prayer, in your holiness, because of the fact that we are unholy, except for what Christ has done. Lord, this morning, as we look at this psalm and we look at who you are and we talk about your holiness and we talk about how exalted you are we talk about how you reign lord i pray that your spirit would have his way in our hearts i pray that we would be able to set aside what distracts us what would creep into our minds and compete for attention but instead that we would focus on you that we would be all present all here right now that we would be engaged with your word i pray that your spirit would do his work in our hearts Lord, I pray that you would strike us with the truths in this passage, that you would motivate us by them, that you would encourage us where we need encouragement, that you would challenge us where we need challenging, that you would convict us where we need convicting. Lord, I pray that you would move today. I pray that your word would have its effect. We ask for your help and for your blessing. We ask for your provision by your spirit right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In uh, 
various schools that I've gone to. I've gone to three different Bible schools or seminaries or different kinds of schools. And in each of those, we were given evangelism classes and we were instructed how to share the gospel and we were given opportunity to go and share the gospel and there was accountability that we would do so and, and uh, all of that. And that was, that, that was the case at each of the schools that I've gone to in, in one way or another. And um, so as I was reading through this psalm and as I was praying about what to preach on this week, I was struck with the various ways that the gospel has been shared, uh, the way various ways I have shared the gospel and the various ways that that I've been instructed how to share the gospel. And and I was struck with the key, the central part of it all, and that is who God is, who God is and how we present him and how we understand him and 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 how we interact with him and and the different uh, tone that our gospel presentations take based upon who we understand God to be or who we present God to be. Obviously, it's crucial for us as we read God's word that we understand what he means in his word about who God is. And so that's what drew me to Psalm 99, because it's it's a powerful psalm in it. And it gives a, a picture of who God is, and it gives a couple of different responses vastly different, wildly different responses to who God is. So as we get into this, first of all, um, you see that it's broken up there. It's, it's basically three paragraphs. Verses 1 through 5 is the first paragraph, and 6 and 7 is the second, and 8 and 9 is the third. And in that first paragraph, really there's a focus on the holiness of God. The holiness of God. Not just His holiness, but that seems to be the refrain. That seems to be where the author comes back again and again to talk about God's holiness. First, I want to take a look at who God is according to this psalm. Who God is. I want to point out a few things that the psalm talks about. First of all, the fact that He reigns. God reigns. What that means is He's the sovereign one. He's the one who's overall. He's the one who determines what's going to happen. He, he is lifted up and He's, he's in charge. God reigns. And that's how the psalm starts. The Lord reigns. That's a high position. And there's a lot of authority. There's actually all authority there. God reigns. He's the one who is in charge. He's the one who's sovereign. He's over events, over world events. He's even sovereign in people's hearts and in relationships and and in ways I can't fathom. God reigns. But he continues on there. He says, the Lord reigns. And then in the second half of that verse, he says, he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Well, obviously, the uh, sovereign, one who reigns, reigns from a throne, at least in a symbolic way, reigns from a, thro- a throne. But he points out here that he sits enthroned upon cherubim. And I thought, that's kind of weird. You have angels as your throne. That's a strange idea to think about. And the more you think about it, the more you see that it points to the fact that these these angels are very high beings, right? They're they're holy creatures and they're high and they're powerful and they're mysterious and we don't quite understand them and they're scary to look at. And when you think through scripture about when angels appeared, did people say, "Hi angel, how you doing?" No, they fell flat on their faces and they were afraid. They were afraid. So these cherubim who are so mighty, so powerful that they were uh, to be feared, even to be looked at, they are just God's throne. Well, it goes beyond that because actually if you think about the construction of the Ark of the Covenant, right, in the tabernacle and then later in the temple, if you think about how it was built, it was this box and it was of a certain size and, and all of that. And then 
the cherubim had their wings spread over the Ark of the Covenant. And in, in the Jewish way of thinking, that exact spot was God's throne. That exactly is where God dwelt, was right there. God reigns, and he reigns from a, a position of frighteningly high authority and frighteningly high and great holiness. He sits enthroned on cherubim. And it goes on. He continues. He said, the Lord is great in Zion. He's exalted over all the peoples. So he, he reigns, and he reigns in a very special and high way, and he's, he's, he's great, and he's exalted. And you're starting to get the picture of who God is, according to Psalm 99, and it is enormous, big. God is beyond what we can imagine. He's sovereign over everything. He's holy. He's high. He's lifted up, right? He is great, and he's exalted. He's, he's lifted high. That's who God is. And I love how it says there in verse 2, he is exalted over all the peoples. Because in this day, we've talked about the way they understood theology, the way uh, people of this time thought about gods, that each nation kind of had their own god or pantheon of gods, right? They had their own group of gods who took care of this nation and this nation and that area and things like that. And this points out about God himself. That he's not just sovereign over you know, Israel, one nation, which is pretty significant. But no, he's, he's exalted over all the peoples. He's exalted over all the peoples. And you think about all the peoples, that's like everybody. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people groups. And how many of those people groups, particularly at this time, even knew about him? Had even heard about him? How, much less how many were submitted to him? right? And how many knew about him? And yet he is sovereign over them. He's exalted even over them, even over the enemies of the nation of Israel, the people who would come and fight and bring war against Israel and try and tear them down and hated God. And he's exalted over them. The people had no idea, people living in China at the time, and he's exalted over them. He's universal. God is overall, and there really is only one God. And he's overall. He's over all peoples. And it goes on and, and uh, says that he is just and he's holy. Look at verse 4. The king in his might loves justice. The king here is God. The king in his might loves justice. You've established equity. You've executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. He is a just God and he is a holy God. He's high and lifted up and he is over all the peoples. He's over all of creation and he is just. He's righteous and he's holy. It's a brief sketch of what the Lord is like. And this is just the introductory part. We haven't even really gotten into the meat, but, but it's important. It's, it's crucial. It's essential that we have a, a proper understanding of who God is before we do anything else, before we continue the conversation at all, that we need to understand how high and lifted up and holy and sovereign and mighty God is. All right. We can't imagine him as sovereign as he really is. He's more sovereign than we can even imagine. He's greater and he's more highly exalted than we can even fathom. He's beyond that. He's holier and he's more just than we can conceive. That's who he is. He's not the top of what we can imagine. He is all the way. All the way. And that's who God is. And when sinful men 
realize these truths about God, the natural and the right result is a great terror, a resulting terror. And this is what got me to thinking about the way I've shared the gospel, right? And I've really majored on the love of God. God is love. Don't hear what I'm not saying. God is love. But when you read this psalm and you think about who God is, there's a resulting terror, terror. Look how he says this, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble, right? In other places, he says, let the peoples rejoice. But this psalmist wants us to think about in light of who God is, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake, shiver with terror. This is the right response to who God is. When we understand how he really is, who he really is, and who he's presented himself to be in Scripture, the natural response for natural man, for unregenerate man, is that we should be afraid of him. That's a right response. Let the peoples tremble. That's not the whole story. But if our conception of God does not include trembling for how high and holy and mighty and sovereign he is, then there's something lacking in our picture of who God is. Let the peoples tremble. The earth shakes at who God is. This is massive and this is high. And let's not bring God down below that. This is not all that God is, but he is not less than this. He's high and he's lifted up and let the people tremble. That's not the whole story, though. There is resulting terror for those who are his enemies or those who do not know him. For unbelievers, there should be terror at the thought of God. Not comfort, terror. But that's not all the story. There's also resulting worship. Resulting worship. Look at verse 2. The Lord is great in Zion. Talking about the temple in Jerusalem. There's a place where, where he's located. The Lord is great in Zion. Praise is due him from everyone, whether they know it or whether they don't. Whether they want to know it or want to praise him, praise is due him. Look at verse 5. Exalt the Lord our God, everyone. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Lift him up. There are two responses to who this mighty God is. Two responses. The one is, is the response of the natural man, the na man who is not related rightly to God, the man who is God's enemy still, the man who is still in his rebellion, the man who's still in his sin. There should be trembling. There should be fear. There should be shaking. Your knees should strike together. You should be scared. But that's not the whole story. The sentence isn't even done because there's another result that comes from knowing him. And that result is worship and praise to who he is. I love this psalm. It's very challenging to me because it contrasts the peoples, the nations, those who are out there and their response. When they learn who God is, they should be afraid. But there is a place, Zion, in Jerusalem. There is a place in Jacob where you can be rightly related to him. And the response doesn't have to be trembling. You can move into worship. You can move into exalting who he is. Those for whom he is the Lord our God, they respond with worship when they're confronted with who he is. They are at peace with him. 
and they are not left trembling in fear. Powerful. That is powerful. The holiness of God. Second paragraph tells us about the answer of God. The answer of God. First, it looks at earthly mediators. Some earthly mediators here. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. I wondered why he singles out Moses and Aaron and Samuel. I'm not certain why he did that. But Moses and Aaron were very closely involved with the foundation of what's called uh, the theocracy, where God is basically in charge of even the civil government of the nation of Israel, right? And that happened at the giving of the law, Mount Sinai, coming out of Egypt, right? They're in, they're in the, uh, uh, in, uh, before they go into the land, they're still wandering in the wilderness. That's the formation of the theocracy, right? And then if you think of Samuel, what did Samuel do? Well, he's like the end of the theocracy, and he is the one who anointed Saul, and then he anointed David. And so he sort of ushered in the kingdom, the monarchy period, right? And so giant chunks of the period of the history of Israel uh, are around these guys. And so I wondered maybe that was why he talked about Moses and Aaron and Samuel out of all the people in the Bible who've called upon God, why he singled out those. So when did they call upon the Lord? Why does he use them as examples? Well, if you think about in Exodus chapter 32, right? The people of Israel have very recently come out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. They're actually at Sinai and they're on their way to go into the land, right? And they've just seen God just a few weeks before. They've seen God deliver them miraculously out of Egypt. Amazing miracles, right? That God did. It was very clear that God was bringing them out and it was very clear that God was using Moses to do so. And so Moses goes up on the mountain and he receives the law and he comes back and what does he find? They're having a party and some worship and they're not worshiping the Lord. They're worshiping these golden calves. Remember the people had talked Aaron into making these golden calves. And the idea was that they wanted to have something they could look at to worship. They wanted to be like the other nations and have a God that they could follow and like they could actually follow him around, right? And they could touch him and they could bow down to him. That's what they wanted. And so they talked to Aaron into making the golden calf and they were bow bowing down and worshiping him and they were doing all kinds of other crazy things. And God sees this and he, he's thinking, I just brought these people out of Egypt. At massive, like with a, with, with a huge display of God's power and favor for these people, he brings them out and a few weeks later they're bowing down to a calf. And God says, I'm going to destroy these people. I'm going to destroy them. And he would have been right to do so. But Moses fell down and begged God not to do that. He begged that God would have mercy. God said, okay, Moses, I'll, I'll stay my hand of judgment. And he withheld that judgment. So Moses called out to God and, and God answered. And if you think about Aaron's job, what was Aaron's whole job? He was, you know, he was the, he was the priest. He was the, the chief priest. He was the one who was in charge of all the sacrificing every day or every week or regularly. He went into the tabernacle to offer sacrifices for this people. His job was to fall on his face before the people and ask God for mercy. That was his whole job. And God answered. What about Samuel? Well, early on in Samuel's ministry, 
First Samuel chapter 7, we read the story of uh, the Philistines coming against, against the nation of Israel and they didn't have a king yet. This is just before the, the anointing of Saul and, and uh, they were afraid because the Philistines were technologically more advanced and they were, they were coming against the people of Israel and they were, they were all afraid. And so Samuel goes out there and he, he, he falls on his face before God and he begs God to deliver them. He, he, he calls out to God. He calls upon his name. God deliver these people. And, and what does God do? He delivers his people. Miraculously, again, God answered. So these men are, are clear examples of mediators, right? When, when there are mediators who stand between God and man to call out to God on, on behalf of man, that God would give mercy, that God would give his favor to his people, even though they don't deserve it. But where do these mediators come from? Did they just like sign up for the job, fill out the application, right? They, they, did a, they did a spiritual gifts inventory and it lined up that they should be a mediator and so they, they signed up for that job. No. If you think about each one of these guys, God specifically called these guys. Moses, burning bush. Remember that whole story? God very specifically calls Moses to be the one who's going to go in and he's going to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh's going to say no way. And God is going to bring about all these miracles through Moses to bring his people out. God appointed Moses. What about Aaron? I had to, I, I thought about Aaron a little bit. Well, remember, so that was in Exodus chapter three when Moses gets called, right? He's pretty brave in chapter three. He's ready to do it. Chapter four, he's having second thoughts. And he says, well, really, Lord, I'm really not that great at speaking. And so can't you find somebody else? And God says, all right, Aaron can go with you. Your brother Aaron can go with you. And so he calls Aaron into the ministry too. It was God's idea that Aaron be involved in that. So God is the one who called Moses. God is the one who called Aaron. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 3, of course you remember the story of little Samuel, right? And he's asleep in the tabernacle and God calls out to him. He hears a voice, Samuel. And he gets up and he goes to his master and he says, yes. And he says, it wasn't me. So he goes and lays down and Samuel, he gets up and goes to his master again. Yes. No, it wasn't me. And so this happened several times. And on the fourth time, finally, the Lord has this conversation. God calls Samuel into ministry to be a mediator for his people. And so all four of those guys didn't just volunteer for the job. God singled them out and said, I want you to step in there and be a mediator for these people. I want you to do that. So these are the earthly mediators. And you can't, you can't have this conversation about earthly mediators without going to talk about the ultimate mediator. Whom God also calls. Not just some guy who volunteered, but Jesus, God's son. First Timothy 2.5 tells us there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. There is a mediator and he's the ultimate mediator. He's the highest mediator. There will, there never needs to be another mediator. There can be no mediator greater than him. He's the mediator par excellence. He's the top. God is the one who reigns. He's holy and just. And the fact that he reigns causes fallen man to tremble in terror. But Jesus has given himself as a ransom for all to be the ultimate and the perfect mediator between God and man. And once more, it was God's initiative, initiative to send the great mediator. Listen to 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was manifest among us, 
that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. God gives this pattern of mediators. And Moses and Aaron and Samuel are great guys. And they're, they're big. They're, they're larger-than-life characters when you read the Bible. And they point to someone larger. They point to someone better. And they point to someone more ultimate. And that is Jesus Himself who is the ultimate mediator. He's the one who stands before God and cries out for us. He's the one who stands there and begs God for mercy for us. God is the one behind sending the mediator in every case. And so we should not be surprised when God responds. God responds. We have earthly mediators and they cry out to God. We have the ultimate mediator and he cries out to God. And we have God responding. Think back through those stories about Moses and about Aaron and about Samuel and and them crying out to God. And these are, like I said, these are larger than life men, but they're men. And it's very easy to point to the faults of these guys, right? Particularly with Moses and Aaron. Moses was a murderer. You know, how much farther do you need to look? to find out that he's a sinner. Aaron made a golden calf so that people could bow down to it. Right? I mean, they're, they're good guys, but they're, they're, they're deeply flawed. They're sinners. Right? And if God listens to the cries, if He responds and answers to the, to the mediation, the cries of guys like that, how much more will He respond to the cries of Jesus, His Son, on our behalf? An answer for us. Folks, we, we are in a, a blessed position. Holy, sovereign, high God that should make us quake in our boots if we really understand who He is. And God sends a mediator. He sends a mediator that we could be restored to Him, that we could be redeemed. And this mediator doesn't just cry out to God. He actually offers up His own body for us. Offers up His own life as a ransom for us that we could be redeemed and that we could move from that circle where we're trembling at who God is to where we are worshiping this great and mighty God, the same God, but now He has forgiven us and now He has redeemed us and now we are in His family. We're in His people and we get to worship Him. God responds. And in the response of God, we find the forgiveness of God. You see, God extends forgiveness. Look at how he says it there. Oh, Lord, our God, verse 8, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them. He extends forgiveness. If you want to read a frightening part of Scripture, read Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28 is frightening because Deuteronomy, this is the second giving of the law or the retelling of the law, right? He's, God is talking about his covenant with the people and the expectations of the people. And he's saying, uh, obey me, please obey me, because if you disobey me, this is what will happen. And if you continue to disobey me, it will get worse. And if you persist in that disobedience to me, this is what will happen. And you read through Deuteronomy 28 and it is bad news. I'm not even going to spell it out for you. It talks about women miscarrying, right? 
talks about the enemies coming in and destroying your land, talking about pestilence, talking about drought, talking about what God is going to do to discipline his people, to teach them. And if they still will not learn, if they will not learn, and if they will not learn, he will come to the point where he will kick them out. And they'll be on their own. And their whole dream has been to go to the land. Since chapter 12 of Genesis, when God called Abraham, their dream has been to go to the land. If you persist in disobedience, boom, you're gone, out of the land. It's a frightening chapter. And if you think about, that is massive stuff. That's an entire nation. And there should be a little bit of trembling there. Think about being in those people's shoes. You know, the law was rough enough, right? And then it gets to the, okay, if you don't obey this, obey this thing, here's the consequence. There would have been some shaking going on there. And as bad as that was, and if you remember the history of the nation of Israel, how did they do? How did they do? They kind of went down the Deuteronomy 28 route, right? And they ended up getting kicked out of the land. They're booted. All this other stuff happened leading up. They were, they were defeated. All these other f- drought, famine, all kinds of judgment from other people, all, all this stuff. And they finally get kicked out of the land. But Deuteronomy 28 is not the end of the story. If you're going to read Deuteronomy 28, you've got to read Deuteronomy 30. You've got to go to Deuteronomy 30 because in there, God tells them, That after all of those terrible curses, after you've been kicked out of the land, and after you've been subjugated to other peoples, and after you've been made nothing, if you will repent, I will forgive you. Even after you've gone through all of that, I will forgive you because I'm a forgiving God. And so he offers forgiveness. He responds with the forgiveness of God. But it continues there back in our, in our psalm. He says, he says, you are a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. An avenger of their wrongdoings. You see, Deuteronomy 28 isn't ultimately and finally meant to be scary. It's meant to be a warning. And what, what good is a warning? What is a warning supposed to accomplish? To keep us from doing that thing. When you warn your child that you're going to spank them or discipline them in some way if they do that thing again. Are you wanting them to do that thing again? No. You tell them that because you don't want them to do that. You're trying to protect them. And if they do that, they need to learn not to do it again. Discipline. That's the purpose of discipline. And listen to Hebrews 12:6. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So even in the massive part of the Old Testament where Israel is in disobedience, God is working to redeem them. He's working to forgive them. He's working to restore them. All right, think about your own life. Think about times when you've persisted in disobedience and there's been, there's been some form of consequence in your life. That kind of depends on the nature of the disobedience, but some consequence, right? If you read Psalm 51, you read Psalm 32, and it talks about like bones melting, like this is just awful, persisting in my sin. God does that because he wants you to turn back to him. He wants you to repent. He wants you to respond. And so there's the love of God, even in the midst of that discipline, specifically in the midst of that discipline is the love of God, that he's disciplining you, disciplining you, that you would turn to him and realize how destructive that thing is and how joyous he is, how wonderful he is and how great and immeasurable, uh, how wonderful it is to be in his presence. 
So he disciplines them. And look, look how this finishes here. Verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. He finishes with full worship. Full worship. When we understand these things, there is full worship. And in God, in peace with God, because enmity with God is a scary thing. Our God is a consuming fire. That's scary. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is scary. But he's forgiving and he offers peace. And it was his idea and he sends you the offer of peace in Christ so that the result is full worship. If we don't understand the first part of this and we don't understand who God really is, verse 9 is much less worship. If God is just, you know, a pretty big guy, kind of like me, but stronger, well, you know, there, there might be a little bit of worship due there. But the fact that he is ultimately higher than me the fact that he is sovereign he's all powerful he has all authority the fact that he is holy all the way separate from sin when i keep that in mind and then i think i get to be reconciled to that god i get to be at peace with that god praise the lord all of a sudden hallelujah means something that is worship we're at a position where we get to worship him This brings us to our first point of application. Since the Lord, who is our God, who reigns on high and in power and holiness, is also a responsive and forgiving God, our response must be to lift Him up, to exalt Him, and to worship Him in the way that He has made known through Jesus Christ, the mediator. There is no other way. There is no other way. Throughout this psalm, you see Him point to Mount Zion, right? That's the temple mount in Jerusalem. He talks about how, how God has established justice in Jacob. That's Israel, right? He says, come and worship at my holy mountain. That's Israel. It's Jerusalem. That's the temple mount. God has made a way for himself to be known. It's, it's, it's localized and it's specific to the way God is revealed. And through him that way jesus we can have reconciliation with god through that mediator another point of application he starts off with the lord reigns the lord reigns and so we don't have to get very far in the psalm before we start understanding that this means that nothing else besides god reigns no one else besides god reigns god does not share authority i don't reign you can all say praise the Lord for that. Chaos does not reign. Evil does not reign. Luck does not reign. The government does not reign. Mother nature does not reign. Chance does not reign. Fate does not reign. Satan, the world, my past mistakes do not reign. Other people's gods do not reign. Or anything else that might loom in our minds as being the final authority or the ultimate thing we're concerned about, that thing does not reign. The Lord reigns. Trust Him. Take courage in Him. Lean on Him. Give Him His rightful place in your heart as the sovereign Lord over everything. 
and take heart. The Lord reigns. That's encouraging to me. Third point of application, let the peoples tremble. Let the earth quake. The fact that the God of the Bible is the one who reigns should strike terror into the hearts of all who don't know him. Many of the things that they do and give approval to are in direct opposition to God's laws. Immorality, drunkenness, homosexuality, abortion, calling evil good and good evil. Those are the things God stands against. Others may not do these things and they may not approve of these things. But they they insist on trying to relate to God in some other way than that which God has ordained. In the Old Testament, God was to be worshipped in the temple in Jerusalem. That's why he put his name there. That's why he put the temple there. That's why he put the Ark of the Covenant there. The priesthood there in Zion. In the New Testament, Jesus says that the worship of God is now only possible through himself, through Jesus, when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Apart from Christ, we should tremble in terror of the holy and almighty God. That is the proper response when you are outside of Christ. When unbelievers understand that the all-powerful God who reigns over them and to whom they must personally give an account for their actions is a holy God, their vulnerable and guilty position becomes clear and they tremble. In Christ, however, we learn that with God there is forgiveness and great cause for rejoicing and for worship. And so we can end on verse 9 and we don't have to be stuck in the second half of verse 1. There is great rejoicing. He offers us reconciliation with him that we could never have deserved or earned on our own. He offers us reconciliation in Christ. He, the holy God who is sovereign and overall, who is exalted, who's high and lifted up, offers you an olive branch in Jesus because Jesus went to pay for your sin when he died on the cross. And he offers you forgiveness that you can be restored and that you can say with the psalmist, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain for the Lord our God is holy. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would be entranced by this vision of who you are, that you are ultimately holy, that you are as high and holy and exalted as can be. And yet you offer me peace in Christ. Lord, my prayer right now is that you would take your word and the truth of this psalm and that you would draw to yourself those whose hearts are far from you, those who don't know you. Maybe for the first time someone trembled this morning because of who you are. And I pray that they would respond to that offered olive branch in Jesus. I pray that they would become worshipers of you and not just fearful, terrorized enemies of you. Lord, make more worshipers of yourself this morning. I pray that you would save souls even now. Draw people to yourself. Thank you for who you are. And thank you that you've made it so that we don't have to remain in fear and trembling and terror, scared of you. But you've made us your own. And we can worship And we do worship. We give you praise and we give you honor and we give you glory right now. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Dismissed.